This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shayna Roth. And I'm Jake Neer. There was a pretty earth-shattering shakeup in the Republican race for governor in next year's election. We already have more than a dozen candidates who want to be the one to take on Democratic incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2022. But when it comes to campaign cash... None of them seems to have the ability to come anywhere close to matching the fundraising juggernaut that is Big Gretch. They don't have their own jingles yet. <laughs> but now that has kind of sort of changed. You see, Kevin Rinky has thrown his hat in the ring for the GOP primary. And maybe that name sounds familiar to you. It didn't sound familiar to me and most likely does not sound familiar to a lot of people. (laughs) But if you're from Southeast Michigan, maybe you've seen his last name on the auto dealerships he used to own and operate. He says he's ready to pour $10 million of his own personal wealth into his campaign. That represents a huge cash advantage over other Republicans running, including presumptive frontrunner, former Detroit police chief James Craig, who has only reported raising $1.4 million. Yeah, I mean, that is undoubtedly a huge shakeup in the race. But it's also, I think, worth noting that even with $10 million of his own money, he's got an entire primary to go through, which will burn through some of that money, probably a lot of it, before Whitmer has to spend a red cent. It's also unclear whether he has any chops as a candidate. I mean, his early messaging is something about not wanting Michigan or the governor to be like a Yugo. This is a Yugo, like the terrible socialist system it came from. It's a pile of junk. I I did not get that reference. (laughs) But Jake, when we talk about millionaires entering the race with their own money, I got to admit, I can't help but think of another example. It seems that for every Rick Snyder, where it did in fact work, there's a dozen Sheree Tanadars where they end up making a lot of noise to very little effect. And I also wonder if this model might start to be a little played out. I mean, do people want to keep seeing these men and women with a lot of money on their televisions or does that hurt their ability to appeal to the, quote, common voter that they're desperately trying to grab the attention of? Not everyone, in fact, very, very few can actually follow that Donald Trump model. And speaking of following the Donald Trump model, I also want to stop for a moment and make a point that I think is really important. I mean, we could just cover this as another horse race story about a candidate getting into the race. But let's take some time to note that Kevin Rinke immediately released a statement giving what I interpreted as a a pretty overt wink and nod to election conspiracy theories. Well, he also was saying that he would audit future elections if elected governor, which is a bit confusing considering governors do not audit elections in Michigan. But either way, I think it's really critical to note that not a single viable GOP candidate for governor has yet to say clearly that they accept the results of the 2020 election, which I think it just puts us in uncharted and possibly dangerous territory. We wanted to bring in another perspective on the 2020 governor's race and what Kevin Rinke's entrance into the race means for the Republican side of things. So we're turning to someone who pays a lot of attention to these things and is a friend of the podcast and knows how GOP politics works in Michigan. Dennis Darnoy is a Republican political consultant. Uh, Dennis, welcome back to Mishmash. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. So, first of all, overall reaction to Kevin Rinke's entrance into this race? I think it adds a, another dynamic to this race. Obviously, it's a very contested primary at this point, but I think you have probably, obviously, James Craig being thought of as the front runner. Um, I think Garrett Soldano had a very impressive first round of fundraising, and Tudor Dixon obviously using the, the retweet of her article from a Trump-affiliated pack as uh, justification for, for why she should be favored. Kevin now steps into that mix. And I think given his financial backing, as well as some of his uh, institutional support, I think makes him a, a legitimate candidate. And you're probably looking at four individuals who have a uh, legitimate claim to make why they would be the best suited to beat uh, Governor Whitmer uh, next year. So you kind of mentioned four of the these people that are kind of coming into the front. Which ones do you see as the like main front runner or do you think will become sort of the main front runner and why? Well, obviously, you know, James Craig has the name ID. He has the support. He has institutional backing from, you know, traditional GOP kingmakers, if you will. So so you have to give him kind of an edge there, especially here in Michigan. The interesting thing is if you've looked, though, at the last three cycles, those candidates haven't necessarily gone on to win. And, and you know, even going back to the 2016 Republican primary for president, first it was Jeb Bush, and then it was someone else, and then it was someone else, and, <laughs> and they all kept falling down. And I'm not entirely sure that James Craig has the support of the grassroots Republicans, and I'm not sure that they are 100% convinced that he is their kind of Republican. Um, so that opens up the door to someone like the Garrett Saldana or Kevin Rinke to say, I've been there. I'm with you. I think Kevin Rinke can look to Virginia and Glenn Youngkin and kind of make an argument that, hey, I'm a businessman. I have, you know, the financial resources. No, I don't have political experience. But again, that has not been an issue for GOP candidates over the last three cycles. So at this point in time, I think there are candidates who want to make the claim that they're the front runner. And obviously, we'll look at the next round of campaign finance reporting to see, you know, if Garrett Soldano built on what he did in that first go around, keeping him very, very close to James Craig. But right now, even though candidates in their campaigns want to claim front runner status, no one really is in a position just yet to legitimately say that they are. There's one thing we can measure that that says, hey, I'm doing the best here, and that is money. <laughs> and if Kevin Rinke is telling the truth that he's going to put $10 million of his own money into his race for governor, he is far, far outpacing anyone else in the in the GOP side of things. But, you know, I'm curious, Dennis, thinking about... That kind of investment in your own campaign, especially when you have very little, if any, name recognition or really understanding of who you are as a candidate or what you represent, that sort of thing. Uh, I noted earlier, Rinky is going to have to go through an entire primary, uh, and that's going to force him to spend a lot of that money. And in the meantime, if uh, he's trying to compete fundraising-wise with Governor Whitmer, uh, she's going to continue to rake in that cash in the meantime without having to spend much at all. In that way, I'm not sure that you can really say that they're on even footing financially, as some people have said. Uh, I'm curious what you think of that. 
Well, there, yeah, I mean, there's so many different layers to peel back on that one, because first of all, we've heard a lot of candidates say, I'm going to put X number of dollars into our campaign. And yet when you look at it at the end of the day, it never really amounts to that. Um, I do think that Kevin Rickey has to spend a lot of money right now to define himself before his opponents define himself. So that's that's layer number one. Layer number two is the fact that even if a candidate, let's say, does put $10 million into his own campaign, there are going to be a number of outside groups, the 501c4s, the social welfare groups that can take money anonymously and then spend it on behalf of a candidate, either supporting someone or, you know, attacking someone. So while the $10 million number is impressive, I'm not entirely sure, again, that someone supporting James Craig, uh, that there's not going to be a, a pack defending him or spending money against Kevin Rinke. Same thing for Tudor Dixon. If, let's just say, she were able to garner the support of that Trump super PAC that supported her, well, they're sitting on a boatload of cash that they could dump into this race. And if they choose her to be their candidate, again, $10 million will seem like like nothing. As for Governor Whitmer, I mean, a lot of her money, and, and, and she does have a financial advantage. I don't think anyone can say that. But some of that money is tied up in, in that she was able to raise based upon a recall. And it's really questionable whether or not she can use that money or be allowed to use that money in a general election campaign. So, again, yeah, she starts in, in a great financial advantage. Certainly, the Democrats want to maintain Michigan as a Democratic state for governors. She will have the full support of the DGA and, and, and others as well. But I do think her current balance is it, it looks a little bit better than what reality would, would suggest. Let's talk about the Trump factor in all of this, even though Donald Trump did not win uh, a second term as president, he is still clearly looming large in the party. Uh, and it, from what I've seen, a lot of these candidates are really using his opinion of him or their agreement with him as a, like, pick me reason. Uh, do you think playing the Donald Trump card is is a good strategy? And is it going to help Republicans like Ranky in this race, particularly in the primary? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting because if you look at the convention and you say the secretary of state or the attorney general candidates, I think, you know, Trump really helps there. You've, it's just the, the Republican hardcore. It's a smaller audience. I, I think what you can see in the primary is Donald Trump will not hurt you in a Republican primary. But it, it, going again back to the, the Glenn Youngkin case in Virginia, there is someone who campaigned and asked for the support of Trump voters without invoking Trump. Mm. And he was he did a very good job of saying, you know, Donald Trump brought up these issues and thank you, Donald, for doing it. And then ran from it there and never really went back to Donald Trump. So, uh, again, I think if I'm if I'm a Kevin Rinke, I'm going to say that that's, you know, that's the approach I'm going to take, that there are suburban voters who have supported Democratic candidates in the past but who are persuadable. They're not persuadable if you're going to say, I'm all in on Trump. And, and again, these are even people who will vote in a Republican primary. So it, it, there is a playbook being written out there that's, that, that suggests you can attract Trump supporters and Trump voters without being a full-throated Trump supporter yourself. 
So that, that I think that, that playbook is out there. I think that's one that we're going to see get a lot of, of play. I think the media, I think the Democrats will try to, to pin down Republican candidates for office on whether or not you support Donald Trump and specifically whether or not you support Donald Trump's claim that the election was fraudulent. And I, I think what we've just seen over this this past cycle is Republicans are figuring out a way to answer that question without saying, yes, I'm 100 percent behind Donald Trump. But there are still questions about the election. And that seems to appease Republican voters enough that, yes, Trump's a factor, but but he is not, you know, the 800 pound gorilla that used to loom over candidates. That's a perfect uh, segue into what I wanted to get into next. Uh, Before we go too much farther into this, I think the thing that I keep coming back to with Rinky entering this race and then his statement on the election that came the day that he announced his candidacy, zero, exactly zero of the viable candidates on the GOP side have said that they accept the results of the 2020 election. I think it would be easy for us to brush that off as well. That's sort of how what they have to do now. But thinking about that from the 10,000-foot view and, and backing away a little bit, to me, that is a an indication of very, very apparent, you know, norm-breaking behavior. Uh, th- this is not normal, <laughs> that you would have a field of a dozen people and all of the candidates that actually have proven that they're serious about this race and can can gain support and traction, none of them will accept the result of a, of an, of a national election. What are your thoughts about that? And just the fact that, again, to play this game on the Republican side, it seems like you, you have to embrace ideas or at least do give them a wink and a nod that, that really are, are just not a normal part of this process or even our democracy. Well, no one on the Republican side has been able to answer this question for me. And and my question to them was, if the election in 2020 was fraudulent, does that mean all of the Republicans that successfully won were elected fraudulently? We all know that that there isn't a rational or logical answer to this. But I, I, I'm always interested in knowing how only one race which was included on every single ballot. I mean, it's not as if there was just one ballot for president and then the rest for Congress and the state legislature. How just one race could be tainted while the others somehow were legitimate. It's a very silly and short-sighted approach to to question the legitimacy of elections. Because again, what they've done is they've opened the door for anyone. Let's just say for, for some reason, Republicans are successful across the board in 2022. Are we now all of a sudden going to accept those elections, especially if nothing has changed in terms of form and structure from you know the 2020 elections to the 2022. So if all these 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 changes that Republicans have asked for regarding elections do not take place, and the 2022 election is run in the exact way, shape, and form that the 2020 election was run, and Republicans are successful, then it, are we to just automatically realize that it was fraudulent? You know, I think we all know people who are on the losing side of an argument but refuse to admit that they're wrong. And I think that's just where we are with this. 
And, and I do like when, when people who have brought fraudulent lawsuits are held accountable and those things should dissuade others. But as you say, there is a narrative in the Republican Party that says, you know, that there was fraud and abuse in the 2020 elections. And in order for candidates to run on the Republican banner and receive Republican support, they do have to to pay homage to the notion that there was something wrong. And I do, again, I think you see candidates trying to to walk that thin line by by saying, well, you know, maybe there was something wrong here or, oh, these people, not everyone should receive a, 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 a ballot, an absentee ballot automatically. They're trying to find reasons to justify their position but which kind of walk away from the line that it was actually fraudulent. So um, it is it, it is something that every Republican candidate has to deal with. And, and to be perfectly honest, and, and from my personal perspective, good, they should. I think they, you know, if, if this is what the Republican Party is going to stand for now, then every single candidate has to answer that question. And hey, you know what? It may win you a primary race. But that is where Republicans will struggle in the general, because you have Democrats, Republicans and independents alike, some who did not vote for Joe Biden, sit there and say, no, there was absolutely nothing wrong with this election. And the more that you try to perpetrate this myth, the more that you defend this individual, Donald Trump, to further you know, his beliefs in that, then the less we're willing to support you. So that is one of the areas where it seems like all of the candidates are kind of like doing the same dance uh, where they're like you said, they're all kind of like on this line of like, I'm not going to come out and completely say that it was stolen, but I'm also not going to say that it wasn't, but I'm going to call for an audit. And it seems to me like all of the candidates on that issue and on several other big issues, they're all really dancing to the same song. And in a field this crowded, how do they stand out? I mean, when you have them all basically saying this, you know, more or less some version of the same things. You know, I mean, that's the fun part of this this election <laughs> when you have essentially four four candidates who are the same. Who's going to do what to to stand out? You know, you look again like a Kevin Rinke. Well, he's trying to stand out by saying I'm putting ten million dollars into this race. James Craig is trying to stand out and say, hey, I can bring minority votes to the Republican Party. And the other two, Garrett and, and Tudor, you know, are, are trying to stand out on, on their own issues. So that's what plays out between now and next August. And, and you know, that's how I think some of them will, will really hope to get that Trump endorsement because that can catapult them into a different stratosphere. I think James Craig is going to try to continue to build establishment support and 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 really have a fundraising advantage over Garrett Soldano to say he's not in the same same league as me and start to peel off voters there. Uh, again, I mean, I, you know, I would be surprised if Kevin Rinke doesn't take the the Glenn Youngkin playbook and just try to run it here in, in, in Michigan, which is, again, going to say I'm not I'm not part of this Lansing mess. I've never been part of this Lansing mess. Um, I'm a businessman and I've got a lot of money. Vote for me. Oh, by the way, I'm a conservative, too. <laughs> um, you know, so. So, yeah, I, I you know, that's that's what they've got to try to do and, and define. And it's not going to be, it, it, you know, the policy issues are going to be the same. 
they all have to walk the same line. So, yeah, what are you going to do to differentiate yourself? And I think that's going to come in the form of who's supporting me and what names within the Republican kind of universe can you can you get to bolster your candidacy? And that's why a Chamber of Commerce endorsement, former Governor Engler, former Governor Snyder, those types of things people are trying to use right now to separate themselves. And I'm probably the only one calling for this, but sure would love to see a Republican uh, gubernatorial debate between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We don't really have a lot going on. Um, <laughs> so why don't we start one now and, and, and see if they can start to pull away from each other as we head into the new year. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I had one quick follow-up on that, which is we are once again seeing somebody saying, like, I'm a businessman and I have all my own money for my campaign. Are voters still interested in that narrative? I mean, we've seen it with Snyder. We've seen it with Trump and we've seen it fail disastrously with Sri Tanadar. Is this something that is still working for voters? Yeah, because government isn't working. And especially within the Republican universe, there's no one who looks at government and says it's working efficiently. So the argument is going to be, look, I've run a business and I've done it well. I've been successful. The business is ups and and downs, but we've managed, we're thriving, we employ, and I can bring that type of mindset to government. The problem with government is too many politicians doing a political job. And so, yeah, I, I do think that that message resonates. And I do think that moving beyond the Republican universe into a general universe, people look at Lansing, people look at Washington, it's just all infighting and nothing's getting done. And if you look at there are focus groups in Virginia that were done after the election, people who voted for Biden, but who also voted for Yunkin. And one of the things that they said was that the Democrats got nothing done. And if you look at Lansing, and you know, other than doing their constitutional duty and getting the budget done, what really can you say is, is a major accomplishment? Um, some you know might talk about car insurance or, or whatever, but for people generally speaking, there's not a lot to look at and to like. So yes, if someone says I'm coming from outside the system and I've been successful in my business, yeah, I think that has a lot of resonance among you know a wide swath of voters. Far be it for me to ask you to give free advice, Dennis, but uh, yeah. and, and especially to, to Democrats here, but. When it comes to what happened in Virginia, I mean, you have this guy, Kevin Rinke, like you said, could follow a similar playbook to to Glenn Youngkin uh, in Virginia. Democrats really tried to bait the uh, the Trump issue in, in Virginia and spent a lot of time trying to tie the two together um, as going as far as I believe I saw a mailer that looked like a Trump sort of endorsement for Glenn Youngkin. And when you looked at who paid for it, it was sent out by by Democrats. Democrats sent this out, which caused a, a big stir. But what I'm asking is, what do you think is, a, is, is an effective counter possibly to that? I mean, do you think that if Democrats did the same thing here in Michigan and tried to tie a candidate to, to Trump, especially one who isn't really fully embracing uh, a lot of the, especially the fringe kind of uh, beliefs that Trump has, is that the better message or is it about what our vision is, what, what we're trying to get done? Uh, you know, what do you think is most likely to motivate voters, uh, you know, away from something like that? So kind of two answers on, on that one. The, the first one is I don't think tying candidates now to Trump 
will be as successful. I mean, Trump's now been out of office and will have been for, for a couple of years. Even though he's looming, these candidates aren't Donald Trump themselves as much as some of them try to be. It, it doesn't have the resonance. Again, I, I think what Democrats fail to to appreciate is that some people who voted for Democrats over the past six years still subscribe to some of the Republican ideology or orthodoxy. And so they're not Democratic voters. They didn't like, you know, Donald Trump as a candidate, couldn't support him. But that didn't mean that some of the things that were being raised and Republican responses to it didn't resonate with them. And so I I think that there's just this thought that, hey, you know, we've won in the suburbs of Oakland County. Hey, we're doing great in Kent County. Wow, the numbers in Livingston seem to have dropped. Uh, They're still Republican, but they're not as high. So that must mean those voters are Democrat. And, And I don't think that's the case. And I think that there are certain issues, especially on the social side, that the more Democrats hammer, the more they actually tend to lose those voters who are kind of like, uh, you know, voters without a party. They still support a conservative ideology, but they do not support Republicans. Now, the one caveat to that, which will be interesting to see what happens, is the Supreme Court case on abortion. Mm. And if the U.S. Supreme Court upholds what Texas did, and you have Republican candidates running for governor saying, I'm not going to repeal Michigan's law, I think 1939 or something along those lines, so that we literally would have the most onerous laws on abortion here. That is the one social issue that I think Democrats would just be, if that were to be the case, Democrats just step back and be like, they've just told you what they're not going to do. Mm. Is that acceptable to you? And I think in, in that case, you would you would see a lot of people, you know, supporting the Democratic candidate, regardless of what's going on in the economy, regardless of what's going on with COVID in this state. I think that is the one issue that could just be a defining issue. And everything else is just background noise. So to kind of round out this conversation here, and to be very blunt, the Republican primary has one white woman, one black man, and then just a bunch of white dudes. So does that hurt the party, particularly going into the general where they know they're going to be going against uh, a woman? Is this hurting, you know, any attempts to seem more more progressive and a more inclusive party when your field is sort of swamped with with white men? Well, the counter argument is going to be, well, we, you know, we're probably going to have a, a female candidate running for secretary of state, uh, you know, you know, so the, the Republican ticket will not likely be an all white male ticket. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, and obviously, you know, that's uh, an argument that, that James Craig is trying to say and make is like, if if I am your your nominee, I will broaden the, the base of this party. Again, whether that's true or not, whether that would be applicable to candidates down ballot, those are things that are sound great. It's kind of like, you know, when you offer someone a tax credit and they, they offer you, you know, a gazillion jobs over the next two years and then two years comes and 10 jobs have been created. So I think, you know, at the time, it's one of those claims that you can make, but, but you never really see whether it's, it's proven or not. And, and I, would, I would argue that in this election cycle, 2022, I don't think that the lack of diversity is going to be something that would impact Republican voters. I, I really think that it's going to be 
more of an issue based kind of election and 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 things such as you know critical race theory or you know d- different social issues that that seem to be cropping up that's going to to play more of a role in terms of who where voters go there is going to be the argument and it doesn't matter who's making it from a from a diversity standpoint that the way that governor whitmer handled the covid crisis in michigan created an economic crisis and didn't need to be so uh, again who who the messenger is, whether it's a female, whether it's a minority, whether it's a white male. I, I don't think that this election that's going to, you know, it's going to inhibit the the party from attracting voters. I really do think it's going to be, you know, government isn't working. We can make it better. That would be a Republican message. The Democrats message is going to be if you elect Republicans, they will dismantle democracy and and the state and this nation will never recover. Those types of arguments. And again, we're still in, in, in a world of negative partisanship. So if I'm team red, it doesn't matter who my candidate is. If it's team blue, I don't like team blue and vice versa. So um, I, again, on the diversity side of things, I don't think this cycle, as much as the Republicans talked about it in the autopsy of 2010, trying to expand, trying to get to younger voters, trying to get a more diverse voter base. In this particular era, I don't think it's going to be um, you know, that, that pertinent. Dennis Darnoy is a Republican political consultant, friend of the show. Dennis, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Mishmash. Hey, thank you very much and a uh, very wonderful and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. You too. Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. All right, that's all for Mishmash. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shayna Roth. Thanks for listening.